Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, everybody. Welcome into a special edition of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. On the program today, the 45th president of the United States of America, Donald John Trump, according to him and every other news outlet in America, will be indicted this coming week in a federal courthouse in Miami. Nick and I, on the latest indictment of the former president, the charges surrounding it, Plus, later on in the program, senior writer over at Golf Digest, Joel Beal, he's going to join us to break down the recent news this past week that was dominating the headlines before the former president, and that's the PGA Tour and Live Golf's merger, potential merger, the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia being involved in this. The ins and outs of that story are crazy onto themselves if you've been following it from afar or if you're just learning about it through this show. Buckle up. Joel later on in the program on all of that. We begin, though, uh, Nicholas, we had so much planned for you and I for this Thursday because the GOP race uh, for 24, you know, uh, Governor Christie has entered the former governor of New Jersey, Vice President Mike Pence, former Vice President, excuse me, Mike Pence. He's entered Nikki Haley. All of them have done town halls, interviews, have all talked about why they feel they should be the nominee for this party, why they feel they should unify the GOP to go actually beat Joe Biden come November of 24. And a lot of them of those three that I've mentioned specifically have all said that the reason they feel they should be the nominee, or at least will get to become the nominee is because they felt Donald Trump won't be the nominee. None of them have pointed to the legal battles. All of them have just said that Republicans are looking for someone new 
to go, you know, dance against President Biden come November of 24. Well, lo and behold, now, after what happened in New York and the arraignment there and indictment of the former president there, now we have a more serious charge potentially here in the federal courthouse in Miami. I want to take a listen real quick of how the news broke as you and I started recording here, Nick, about the former president being indicted. Take a listen to this. And good evening. What is what has never happened before has just happened tonight. For the first time ever, former president of the United States has been indicted by a federal grand jury. Donald John Trump charged, according to a source familiar with the matter, with seven counts in the classified documents case. This is a special edition of 360 from New York. I'm Anderson Cooper. And here in Washington, I'm Caitlin Collins. And in keeping with his reality TV roots, the former president preempted any Justice Department announcement of the charges against him in a series of posts on his social media network. In one, just a few moments ago, he wrote, quote, I have been summoned to appear at the federal courthouse in Miami on Tuesday at 3 p.m. He goes on to say he never thought it was possible that such a thing like this could happen, then drifts into boasting about how he won all the votes in the presidential election, which we know is not true. He also wrote in all caps, quote, I am an innocent man. So one thing to know about this, because if you've been following this show, you know that we have talked about this, at least the charges that could potentially come in a few different states, right? There's the probe that's happening in Atlanta. There was the special counsel, Jack Smith, that was assigned recently by DOJ uh, to investigate the documents uh, portion of this, the documents that were found at Mar-a-Lago, why the FBI went there last year, the subpoenas that were defied by the former president due to the national, uh, excuse me, NARA requesting these documents that he had in his possession. The difference, again, for people that have not been following all this, that may have seen that former President Biden, when he was a vice president, had documents found in his possession, Former Vice President Mike Pence even alluded to it in his town hall because he had documents, but both of them cooperated with the authorities in turning these documents over as they were either collected as part of their personal possession, et cetera, et cetera. Trump, on the other hand, former President Trump has been a little bit different. He's been defiant. He said he's declassified these. These were documents he was entitled to take. And then to bring you all up to speed right now, the charges that are potentially coming. And again, as of this taping, News may have changed about this, but as of this taping right now and what's being reported and confirmed across all the major news outlets is that Trump is being indicted for seven counts. One of them is conspiracy to commit this crime. We've had different folks on this program, FBI agents, defense attorneys, former prosecutors on here talking about this. And a lot of them have pointed to this specific case involving the documents because as former FBI Special Agent Pete Lapp told you and I, Nick, it's not really about the amount of documents. It's what's in the documents, right? It's what is actually still deemed information that could potentially, you know, uh, hurt an asset that the U.S. is leveraging right now, anything like that. So next week, uh, Tuesday at 3 p.m., if you're listening to this on a Friday or whenever you listen to this over the weekend, next week, Tuesday, June 13th at 3 p.m., the former president, as he announced on his true social platform, says he will be summoned to appear at that federal courthouse in Miami. The White House has not commented on this. Former president, uh, excuse me, former president, look at me, Nick, Freudian slip there. Um, president, current president Biden has said nothing about this. The White House is offering no comments about this. Let's do a real rapid reaction to this because you and I had a first segment all planned. I was ready, ready to go, baby. Talking about the future of the GOP 
and the candidates that have now entered into this. You know, you can still run for president and be indicted. You can still run for president and be arrested. You could be in a cell and still run for president and potentially win. There are no laws and legal analysts that we've talked to that have said anything to the contrary. Like you can do all of this. And now here is the second indictment for the former president of the United States. Some of your initial takeaways when you heard this, I mean, I texted you maybe an hour before we started recording and was like, hey, throw away segment one because the 45th president of the United States is going to be indicted again, according to him. What did you make of all of this? A quick rapid reaction from you. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that stood out to me was actually two days ago, you know, um, report from ABC News with other outlets put this out there, too was the former chief of staff to President Trump, Mark Meadows, testified you know, to the grand jury. Um, and one of the reasons he testified is because you know, earlier this year, a federal judge rejected the president's claims of executive privilege. And Meadows and other former Trump aides were, at, were to testify. Um, when I heard that, that first kind of stood out to me as that's a person really close to this. And then later, well, you know, I don't want to be misquoted, but I believe I think there was some kind of negotiation, some kind of deal that potentially was that we have to follow that up. But, you know, once that I mean, someone that high up on the chain, you know, was agreeing to move forward with the testimony. It felt like something it felt like something was in the air. Right. And I say this literally as a person who you know, lives in the Northeast. And we've certainly had something in the air right now. But so two days later, you know, now we're hearing from the former president, but it's also being, you know, it's not directly being confirmed by the Justice Department, but they are not necessarily denying it either that we're that we're going to be moving forward. You know, the key one of the key things here is that what I'm understanding is, you know, this trial will take place in Florida. And there's I immediately when I heard that, my first reaction is I don't think he loses. I think it's a hung jury. I don't think they get a prosecution or. I don't know, but Jack Smith has not struck me as a guy who likes to fool around. He's not political, doesn't talk to anybody. So if he's willing to, that's a, that's a little like saying, I sure I could take home field advantage in this game, but I'm going to do this on your home court because I'm that sure we're that good or we have that good a case. And I'm really interested to see what happens next. But yeah, as you said before, you know, we've talked about what's going on in Georgia, what happened recently with New York. And what's happening here? And, you know, not too long ago, we had people on and we asked you know, of these different legal fires, what's the one to be the most worried about? And Georgia was the one that a lot of people had said is the one to be more concerned about. But in this particular case, and I like what you did there earlier, Mike, about the differentiator, because, yes, once you know we have this conversation, it goes to social media. We're going to get you know, we're going to get the Trumpites who say, well, you know, well, what about Biden and what about Pence? And it's like, do you folks not understand that in those cases? When they were asked, they turned them in. This fool said, eh, ain't got it. And then turned to come to find out, yes, you do. So clearly there's a reason why you lied. And you're obviously finding out recently that you know someone emptied a pool and magically the water shows up. You know, were there surveillance cameras? Like so suddenly, like things are getting flooded, which would give us access to know who came into the house. And again, I want to be careful with, you know, correlation, causality and all that good stuff. But I tend to be a fan of and I'm saying this not pun intended, because, again, we are dealing with fires in Canadian forest here where there is smoke. There is fire. And that's always been the case with Donald Trump. The question is, which of these cases is the one that that really gets him? Um, I've heard from people earlier today that 
we shouldn't be so dismissive of what happened with the situation in New York with Alvin Bragg. You know, at the end of the day, he was indicted. And if we're just keeping a record of how many L's this president has taken, it keeps climbing. You know, one of the most interesting parts of this is this case took place, is going to take place in Florida. You know, from, you know, federal officers, you know, executing a warrant, you know, in Mar-a-Lago. The governor of Florida is running for president right now. You just got dropped in your lap a bombshell, a fantastic campaign talking point. Is he going to use it? DeSantis doesn't strike me as someone who's likely to do so. We've seen others, Chris Christie in particular, but DeSantis has this opportunity now to be able to distinguish himself further and say, listen, in this state, one of two people is dealing with federal charges and it ain't me. I don't know if he'll do it. Right. Right. I mean, so well said because, and like I said, it was kind of the reason why when you and I were crafting the first segment tonight, this, you know, it's funny. This is the second time it's happened. Well, obviously he's only been indicted twice, but each time that this has happened, there's been more pressing news of the day where this is obviously, you know, taken everything aback. Now, first segment, blow it up, uh, talk about this. And again, this is according to him. The Department of Justice has not said anything. His lawyers are in Miami. They have met with special counsel Jack Smith's team. So this is all expected, and now it's being confirmed by the news outlets. I get all that. I'm not saying the news outlets are wrong. What I am saying is is that nobody has officially released a statement except the former president of himself on his social media platform breaking his own news. You heard Caitlin Collins say they're kind of keeping with his reality TV persona. He wanted to get in front of this and break this first. Um, I I just uh, You said something there that kind of hinted at me where it was kind of like, how many L's is he going to take? I think you said or something like that. And it's like the whole point of 2016 was a foreshadowing of, look, you may not like Hillary. I get that. Nick and I have, you know, mentioned her before. I get that. I get not liking Hillary Clinton. There's a bunch to not like there. Um, Maybe there's some in policy. Maybe there's some more in public persona. Maybe there's some with her former you know, I'm not former current husband um, as former president. Some of the things that maybe you didn't like that he did in the Oval Office. I get all that. But in 2016, we had a choice to not see Donald Trump in, you know, the political sphere because he had run for president in 2013, if you remember. And he polled so bad that he was the, the butt of jokes at, you know, the White House Correspondents Dinner. And the people were like, there's no way this guy could ever make some type of comeback. You know, it's funny because I did want to play one thing. Um, I'll play it right now because why not? Um, Chris Christie was on Jake Tapper uh, show recently, and he had mentioned something about the former president as to why this time is different than last time. At first he asked him a little bit about the legal uh, bouts right now, especially with this and the news potentially breaking because Trump had hinted to this. Christie answered that because he's a former federal prosecutor. But then the next question kind of funneled in perfectly as to what do you, why is it different this time around for you guys? Take a listen to this. Well, the whole atmosphere is different, Jake. You know, in 2015 and 16, when we ran the first time, uh, you had a situation where Donald Trump had no record to speak of. Um, he had been on a TV show. I had been a developer, private developer in New York. There was no way to really make the case against him. And we, we, I think all of us, myself, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, John Kasich, Ted Cruz, all found it very difficult 
to make the case because he could say whatever he wanted to say. There's no proof point to prove that he couldn't do it. So I'm going to build a wall across the entire border of Mexico, and Mexico is going to pay for it. Well, I didn't think he was going to be able to do that, um, physically figure out a way to do it. Um, but how can you prove that he wouldn't? This is different. Today, we know he said he would build a wall across the entire border of Mexico. He didn't do it. About a quarter of the wall is built. He said Mexico would pay for it. We haven't gotten our first peso. Um, and we know a lot of other things. He said he was going to repeal and replace Obamacare. He had a Republican Congress for two years, didn't get it done. Said he was going to balance the budget in four years, left with the greatest deficit of any president in modern history. Said he was going to get rid of the national debt in eight years and left it trillions higher than when he walked in the door in just four years. There is a record here, Jake, on things both very, very significant on public policy, but even on the trivial. Remember, he used to go after Barack Obama for playing golf. And I remember standing on one of the debate stages one time and he looked in the camera and said, I will not play golf a day because I'll be so busy fixing all of America's problems, and he wound up playing golf for 260 days. So our promises, both big and small, he broke them. He disappointed our party. He disappointed the country. And that's going to be the focus of this campaign. What do you think of what Christie kind of said there, Nick, about it is true, 2016 is way different now. In 2016, Donald Trump was fast and loose. You know, he could go in there, you know, make people laugh, if you saw in the debates, the nicknames stuck with little Marco and Rand Paul and Lion Ted. And now all of a sudden it's 2023 and the president's now been indicted twice post-presidency. And there are still some issues that carried over from his presidency into the Biden administration that either President Biden has done well on or some he has not done well on. What do you make of what Christie said there about now the future of the GOP field, because you alluded to it about DeSantis leveraging this. DeSantis is not great at leveraging things like this, just from a public speaking perspective. Maybe his campaign can create some good ads out of this. I'm sure all of them will be able to do that. But what do you make of what Christie just said there? That I think Christie needs better people, better research. Um, I say this all the time about, about Trump and those who support him, that if you would live in the tri-state area through the 80s and 90s, you would have seen he's a con artist. Like there's there's very little record of successes this man has, hence him not showing his taxes. So when Christie says that, that we have a lot more information now than we did then, there's truth to it. But if you would actually put a little thought into your skull and prepare to actually get in the dirt with this man, you would have found something. But Republicans took him lightly. They figured TV character, you know, beauty pageant owner, whatever. He's a nobody, whatever. And they all got embarrassed for that. But you know, as he says, I think about if I had gone, if I had worked for one of these other candidates, I would have immediately start pulling up clips from what Trump had said about the now exonerated um, five, you know, five young black men uh, from the Central Park Five. Uh, I would have brought up statements from people who had worked on his hotels who didn't get paid. I would have brought up information about, you know, migrant workers that here's a person who denigrates their country, but other people you know, in the southern border have worked here and he was more than happy to pay them. You know, where was this racist rhetoric? Notice that no Republican candidate came after him and said, day one, you came up those stairs and said Mexicans are rapists. We're not that party. John McCain did that in 2008 when that bigot called Obama and said he's a Muslim terrorist and all this hateful stuff. And John McCain was willing to say, no, we're not. This is not who we are. In 2016, the Republicans had no spine. And they didn't take him seriously. So, yeah, when Christie says it, and again, as someone who's lived in the state of New Jersey for many, many years, 
part of which during the Christie administration. I'm not surprised. Christie's a bozo. I mean, he's I mean, he had some successes as a governor, but in many ways he was full of bluster and he still is. Um, so for him to say that there was nothing we could have done is is foolishness and it's ignorance. And it's a way to try to cop the plea of, well, I didn't have enough back then. Help me out and let's let's move forward. Nuh-uh. No, and not to mention Chris Christie, the same person who worked as a Trump advisor. Now you have the audacity to go turn around the ultimate flip flop and say, well, no, you know, I, I, I don't support him anyway. So you work for the dude and now you're on the outs and now get out of here. Get out of here with this. He he's the he is perhaps the biggest clown of, of that group. Speaking of flip flops, I'm so glad you said that because it feeds in perfectly into our next segment as senior writer over at Golf Digest. Joel Beal is going to join us to talk about the PGA Tour and Live Golf's merger, the public investment fund, the flip flopping that happened from the PGA Tour just a short 16, 18 months ago. We're going to talk about that. We're going to get into the Trump stuff in another episode. But when we come back after the break, Joel Beal is going to break down everything with PGA Tour and Live Golf. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. quick break from our pod to tell you about a new pod at fresh roasted coffee envy pods so if you go to freshroastedcoffee.com my partner's shaking his head that's a good transition what are you are you kidding me it was good no i shook my head i was like that's brilliant <laughs> thank you because i saw the i saw this picture earlier i was like i saw it, i saw what you're doing that's right it is a fantastic transition nick if i do say so myself listen the new envy pods over at our partners at fresh roasted coffee these pods are environmentally safe. They are compostable. And let me tell you something. When you open these individually wrapped pods, Nick, they smell absolutely delicious. You can check out these new pods from our sponsors over at freshroastedcoffee.com and enter in the promo code, new promo code, can we please get 20, all one word, and the number 20, can we please get 20 for 20% off your purchase? Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today. All right, kind enough to join us here is senior writer over at Golf Digest, Joel Beal, to break down everything that happened this past week with the PGA Tour and Live Golf and the Public Investment Fund. Joel, Mike Leon, Nick Saveri, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Of course, thanks for having me, guys. Joel, you know, I, you and I both know, and I used to work over at, at Golf Digest once upon a time. Um, I've been talking about this over the last course of the year. We've had Robert Lucetich on to discuss this when the uh, lawsuit started with the PGA Tour and Live Golf. And everyone was kind of wondering all about this, like how this would net out in a year's time. And here we are in under 
a year's time. It feels like it's been a little bit longer, but the merger came out on Tuesday with the PGA Tour, DP Tour, and the Public Investment Fund. Can you break down for our audience what this means, why it's important in the sports landscape, specifically in the world of golf? Well, the odd thing is, is no one quite knows what it means yet. And that includes both sides of this equation. Um, from all that we know have gathered so far, this really came down to four or five people making this deal. And teams from both the PGA Tour and Live Golf basically found out in real time on Twitter and in the CNBC um, announcement. So what this will actually entail, I mean, it, it's like we cannot underline enough how few details there are, are currently in place, especially since this still has to go through a DOJ and antitrust investigation. There, there's a chance this could be shot down. Um, what we probably can say for certain is that Saudi money will now be coming into the PGA Tour. Whether you want to look at it as a merger, a partnership, alliance, the verbiage continues to change, it seems like, every hour. Uh, but this is also something that no one really foresaw coming. You can go back to even just a month ago, Jay Monahan explicitly said he just could not envision any peace scenario given that both sides were in litigation. So uh, to say this was a surprise on Tuesday is uh, understatement of the, of the year. Joe, as you mentioned, you know, obviously, you know, details are still coming in. Um, You know, the word that we're hearing often is the word merger as it, as it relates to this, from what you're seeing so far, you know, the cynic in me here is merger thinking of live being a much smaller entity and not really a successful one, you know, currently shout out to the CW obviously, but um, you know, where it stands now, it seems like, you know, small bank took little bank, but small bank has a whole lot more money involved. Is this really a case of a merger or is this really the case of the private investment fund for Saudi Arabia has essentially purchased one of the largest golf entities in the world? Yeah. Both sides have been quick after after the news broke to kind of like hey this wasn't a merger i think the merger order kind of came out of that cnbc uh piece and again both sides have been saying it's more of a partnership and alliance uh what what the pga tour has told us is that right now piff is expected to bring in about 20 percent as a partnership that leads the governor of piff as the chairman of this new board but the pga tour would still have most board seats and they maintain they would assert control over this new entity um, that would be aside from the PGA tour. Um, now that's, that's also a hard thing in discussion. You talk to certain people, the tour, they say it's an appendage. Others say this is actually an umbrella of the tour. So we're not even, if you wanted to flow chart it, you couldn't do it because th- that just shows you how, how little framework this actually looks like. But the important, important thing is that there is a partnership where, anyone who said that it's all this coming is lying to you. Joe, the other part that has been coming out is that the, the original call, you know, from leadership at the PGA with players was contentious to say the least. And that's using it in the lowest way possible. And it seems like one of the things that's coming up is the reality for players who opted to not uh, partner with live last year, essentially lost out on this substantial amount of money. Has there been any discussion of how the PGA through this partnership could potentially make it up to players. Is that even being talked about? Because I imagine it's potentially, and correct me if I'm wrong here, potentially something that's sitting on the minds of players who thought, you know, they were following their ethics a year ago. I mean, that's been the main topic from those who have stayed loyal to the PGA tour. 
Uh, again, although it's very short on specifics, Monahan has essentially said both in interviews with his membership, as well as on TV, as well as the media, that's basically his number one goal now is how to make right with those guys. And at least from what we know in the players meeting, he said the top 10 players will make even more than they would have went to live. How that comes to pass, uh, again, no one really knows yet. It's funny, when discussing these scenarios over the past year or even two years, the pushback we always got from both the tour and the, as well as the tour players was how do you rectify telling your membership who stayed that, hey, this guy who just took $60 million to leave can now come back with very little pen- penalty. It's the, the idea that the person would give that money back is just something you can't can't foresee happening. Um, even legally, it sounds like it's <laughs> like something that could uh, possibly happen. Um, and the idea that even though there is this new money infusion to make up that deficit that these guys passed on is just something that people are having a real hard time wrapping their heads around. And you mentioned the morality standpoint too. That's been so far, I think the biggest pushback on this uh, is that Monahan as well as Tor really played the morality card, but invoking families of 9-11 and, and discussing when, when Liv launched last year, hey, we've never had to apologize for being a member of the PGA Tour to obviously signify the problematic ties that the Saudi PIF has uh, with Liv Golf. And now to go back on that and take the exact same money, um, you know, you can think what you want about the money if, if it's dirty. Obviously, that's been a very deep dive on the idea of sports washing. Um, but they took their stand now to kind of go back on that and turn, do a 180 and especially to leave players in the dark, too. I think that's what really that's where most of the hurt feelings are right now. A lot of the players feel like they were pawns in this game. And um, obviously, it, it's supposed to be a player run organization. And this was a decision made not by the players. Hey, Joe, you know, you kind of fed into my follow up perfectly because I was going to ask you a little bit about how do we reconcile that, you know, June uh, interview with Jim Nance on CBS and the commissioner specifically saying, uh, have you ever had to apologize for being a player on the PGA Tour? And now players may have to apologize for being members of the PGA Tour. I did want to ask you, though, just as a side to that, what I've noticed now as mainstream outlets are starting to cover this, you're getting folks that either don't play the sport, don't know anything about the sport. So they're asking kind of either the wrong questions. Uh, I saw Caitlin Collins interviewing Bryson DeChambeau. And besides getting Jay's name wrong, didn't really harp into the certain things as to why he left, why he's coming back now, like a, a bunch of different questions that were just not asked properly. So what would you say to media outlets that are kind of covering this? Because this is going to be in the news for the next couple of months as the lawsuits tend to fade out now, but the DOJ and we find out if this will violate any antitrust laws, if this even gets passed, what would you say to members that are covering this that maybe don't follow the sport on what are the questions to ask? Yeah. So a few things there. First, you mentioned the hypocrisy. I mean, Monaghan on a couple occasions now, both in interviews with on TV, as well as with the media has, he, he's called it out. He said, listen, I know I'm going to be called a hypocrite for this. And that's kind of all he said about it. I think he knows there is no right answer because it's hard to defend pulling a 180, not only a 180 on anything, but a 180 on that subject alone. It's just something that's a lot of people are, are not going to reconcile. And any attempt to do that is going to be tough. Another person involved is Jimmy Dunn, who was one of the figureheads with the tour help facilitate this. Jimmy Dunn is the guy who lost most of his company in the 9-11 terrorist attacks. His, his office was located at World Trade Center. 
this was the guy who ultimately made the deal with Saudis. And I think that's that's the really, really tough one. That I think people are having a hard time trying to understand. Um, as for what journalists should maybe be asking the commissioner, I, I think once a lot of people are still trying to chew on is if this deal was so imperative and and means so much to the players, why was it kept so secretive and kept to just such a few people involved? Um, why was that secrecy needed? Obviously, in mergers and acquisitions, it's not like this is they're all well known um, going into it. But the fact that this was done really behind closed doors, I think, was is raising some questions. Um, why? Why now? This. As as you guys know, there's been a lot of litigation since August, both with the PGA Tour and Live Golf and Live Golf and the European Tour. And so far, Live Golf has lost every court battle. Things were looking really good for both the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour. And the fact that they now are thinking this is the time to kind of look in a partnership, I think that the timing is very odd. Um, it's also not copacetic with what they have said not only in the past but even as just a couple of weeks ago that they felt financially they were in a good spot um so were they kind of not telling us the whole story then or what else has kind of come to light um i think another fair question to ask is was there fear of discovery in the in the litigation process of either side finding something that they didn't want made public that's another part of this deal is that with this partnership all pending litigation will be stopped so this is still very fresh and so far few if any details have come out. It's, it's going to take a while to unpack all this, but uh, there's certainly a lot of questions right now that don't have answers. You know, Joe, uh, I want to point the, the audience to golfdigest.com because you wrote an article about Rory McIlroy for people that don't know who Rory is. Maybe you're not a golf fan out there. One of the more visible faces on the PGA tour and in your article and obviously an oppressor that he gave recently as of this taping right now, the RBC Canadian opening has happened on the PGA tour. And he was saying a bunch of things last year, very outspoken. Everyone knows about his feud with Greg Norman, at least in the public eye. And in this presser uh, during the week, he said, I felt like a sacrificial lamb. I felt like I stuck my neck out there. And now the PGA tour, like you said, secretive that this was only a few people that knew about this. And all of a sudden they're watching it on CNBC play out. Take us a little bit inside that article. And then one of the more prominent faces on the tour feel like he's being backstabbed. Like how do you, how does Jay Monahan go out there and repair these relationships that he's really basically engulfed in flames in the last four or five days? Yeah. So just for a little context, besides arguably being one of the best golfers in the world, Rory McIlroy has been the basically de facto face of the PGA Tours battle against Live Golf. Monahan has essentially stayed away from the spotlight for the most part. And he's actually charged in multiple instances, told the players, this is your tour, you fight for it. And Rory was the one that kind of took up that responsibility week in and week out, answering the tough questions. Basically, I mean, he had a chance to make hundreds of millions to jump to live. And he stayed with the PGA Tour because, and he, um, he said this on multiple occasions, he wasn't comfortable with where the money was coming from. And I don't think people understood the toll that took uh, both physically and mentally, aside from all the the pressures that come with being one of the top golfers in the world to now burden this fight. And this fight got really acrimonious and th really things were said. And, and, and if you go online, you can see just a, a lot of divisiveness and obviously going up against a, a regime like that is not an easy task. So, Rory even said a couple of weeks ago, he really didn't understand the toll it took until kind of after the year was finished. And even now you can tell he's still trying to come to 
grasp of that. So for McElroy to find out the morning of this was happening without his input, uh, you know, people around me have told me he feels like he's been sold out in the sense of the one thing he stood up for that basically sold, sold him out without, you know, it, what was he standing up for basically? Now, I don't think he regrets that. Um, that he mentioned that in, in his press conference. He, he, he did what he believed was right. Uh, at the same time, though, that he was paraded out every week to, for something that he was trying to fight for to feel like he wasn't at the end was just kind of used as he mentioned, he felt like he was a sacrificial lamb. I think that's, you can, the feelings are hurt and those are, those feelings are real. Joel, before we let you go, um, one common refrain in all of this over the last 12, 18 months from everyone has been, this is going to grow the game. As somebody who plays the game and I'm pretty good, seven handicap, Joel, if you're scoring at home, but um, how does this grow the game? For people like Nick who don't play golf, for people that are listening to this, that don't watch golf, that don't know anything about golf, these players, when they left for live, when you saw the dollar figures they were getting, the answer was always, it's not about the money, it's about growing the game. Here we are less than a year later, there's a huge merger between these two entities, not necessarily live, that's a different story altogether, but, and now all of a sudden, the still the same refrain is being said, this will help grow the game. This is good for the game. How the hell is it good for the game? I don't think it's, first of all, like the growth of the game is a platitude that was thrown out there to try to cover up what live golf was about, which was sports washing. It was a, a tentacle of Saudi Arabia's vision 2030, which is their blueprint to try to diversify off oil dependence um, and basically help acclimate them to the uh, a Western world that had ostracized the kingdom for a while. Um, so grow the game. I think anyone who had been paying attention to not only golf, but just what Saudi Arabia has been about. saw right through that, but you're right. We've seen that phrase now jotted out again, that this is actually for the good of the sport, you know, at the heart. Yes. A United golf is better off. We've seen other sports. What happens when these divisions happen? I mean, professional boxing is, is nowhere near what it once was because there's no unification. Um, but so there, there is some good in the long run, but this idea that the Saudi money is, is a good thing is just, I think people just have no appetite for it right now. Um, I think the only thing I would say is, Hey, there is a difference between professional golf and then just golf between your buddies and going out and playing your local course and your public course. That golf is still there. Um, don't, don't, if this, if this leaves a sour taste in your mouth, you're not alone, um, but this does nothing to grow the game in that sense. Going to your course with your buddies, that's that's what's going to grow the game. He's a fantastic writer over at Golf Digest. Joel, can't thank you enough for hopping on the podcast with us and breaking this all down. Continued success to you. Please stay safe. Thanks, guys. Having me on. Appreciate it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. 
Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. All right, our thank yous there to Joel Beal, senior writer over at Golf Digest. Uh, go check out that article that he did about Rory McElroy. You know, for people that maybe don't follow golf and you're wondering why are they talking about PGA tour public investment fund? What, what do all these words mean? It means that a foreign government uh, is influencing one of the major pro sports here. That's not only in the U S it's a global sport. I mean, I know I worked for the international arm of the PGA tour once upon a time to launch an app out there that the rest of the world could use to watch the European tour ladies golf as well. Um, so, this is a pretty big deal. There aren't any other major sports here in North America, at least from the NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball, um, or the NFL, that have an international government that they've merged with. The public investment fund is owned and operated by Saudi Arabia. That's not Mike Leon's opinion. That's not Nick Saveri's opinion. That's not even Joel Beal's opinion. That's a fact. It's run, it's put into place by two governors that are running it right now. And uh, we saw one of them on CNBC with the PGA Tour Commissioner, Jay Moynihan. And um, I, I don't know. I it, What were some of your takeaways, Nick? Because for me, I'm a little bit invested in it. You know, obviously, having worked with the tour, you know, adjacent to the tour in this joint venture that Golf Digest and some other entities um, do with the PGA Tour. And I remember texting a tour contact soon as this news broke and, you know, um, Joel kind of said it there about the morale, the morale by employees was really down. And one of the things I didn't, I forgot to ask him there was how bad is the PJ tour doing financially that they need to go out there and find a fresh stream of revenue and a fresh stream of revenue from a foreign government that has had to put it mildly, questionable actions, you know, over the last 20, 30 plus years. Now, again, people will stay sticks and stones, you know, or excuse me, those in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. The United States has meddled in certain things. I get that. I totally get that. This is a little bit different. What are some of your takeaways from for the non golf guy out there? Speak to that non golf audience that's probably listening to this that says, I I don't get it. What does any of this mean? What were some of your takeaways? Yeah, I mean, I think uh Bottom line, to the casual golf fan like myself, and I, and I don't, I don't play. I mean, I've done the occasional pitching putt, right? But what this comes down to is, I'm a fan of sports, you know, and I'm an American. So, you know, sports pl- has played a huge role in my life, you know, as a viewer, you know, as a player. Um, so I've always been, you know, just caught up in it. So inevitably, politics plays a role. You know, and we've seen instances, you know, everything from Daryl Morey's treat about, you know, China's situation with Taiwan, you know, and the rebuttal from LeBron James and other people at the league, um, you know, to what we saw with the World Cup and Qatar, you know, being awarded, you know, one of the most important tournaments in, you know, global sports. And now what we're seeing here. So, you know, it you can be the most casual fan. Just recognize that we're talking about one of the most notable sports in the country in terms of just recreational play. I mean, there's tournaments, you know, throughout the year, you know, Tiger Woods, obviously. And now 
we're talking about a country that to the average American, we, we all have a perception of Saudi Arabia. And, and for the most part, it's not a really good one. Um, you know, we think about Jamal Khashoggi, like a lot of these things come up. And now what we're understanding is essentially from the outsider's view is that the country that has a very questionable reputation has just flat out purchased one of the most notable sports in our country. So you have to recognize that. And as a golf fan, you you had a sliver of a moment where when live was its own entity that you could take the stand of someone like Rory McIlroy and say, like, this isn't this isn't right. This isn't for me. And now the question I'm going to ask all fans of the sport, those who those of you and I, I want to draw a distinction between those who play, because I think there truly is still the the freedom of that to play with your buddies, play with yourself, develop your game that you can be removed from the politics. But if you're someone who watches avidly the PGA or you show up you know, for the majors, you know, every year, um, where where do you draw the line? What do you prepare to put to the side? And we see this in music. You know, we see this in sports. And that's what stood out to me. And I think to the casual fan, that's the question is the more you sort of look into how the sausage gets made, essentially, in sports finances, the more you kind of wonder, is this what you're comfortable with consuming? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And again, as as the golf aficionado on this uh panel and as somebody who's worked in the sport for a few years um like i said it was it was a total shock to me i mean just seeing where this would net out i never thought that this would happen i mean one one side has all the leverage has the distribution has the best players the other side just happens to have the money and we see what happens there and we'll see how it nets out like joel said still a lot left unsaid speaking of unsaid we'll see how our first segment nets out with former president donald trump appearing in a courthouse in Miami on Tuesday. No episode next week. However, funny enough, we have a legal analyst scheduled for our next episode outside of this. Not that, not a coincidence. So in the next episode of Can We Please Talk, we'll be able to talk a little bit more with a legal analyst about the former president's indictment in Miami. If you want to check out the video portion of our interview with Joel, head to our YouTube channel, type in Can We Please Talk Podcast. Please subscribe to that channel, audio podcast platforms, you know, by now, Apple, Spotify, Google. Shout out to everybody who listens to us on Good Pods. Shout out to ACAST, our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. Can't do it without each and every one of you that listens to this program. As always, I am Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Severi. We'll see everybody next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.